Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, that whooshing sound followed by a loud splash you heard this morning was Australia's leftists collectively gasping, then dropping their soy lattes after hearing that the most popular party in the Italian election on the weekend was the Brothers of Italy which is led by fascist dictator Georgia Maloney. How fascist is Maloney? Well, not only is she patriotic and Christian, she is also resolutely feminine and a mother. And even worse, she has another fascist characteristic that annoys leftists so much, a sense of humour. Here's a video she posted on election day. It's a play on her surname, which is Italian for melons. 25 settembre. Ho detto tutto. The leftist media went straight into battle against this challenge to its global hegemony. The Age newspaper in Melbourne said, quote, Italian voters rewarded Maloney's Eurosceptic party with neo-fascist roots, propelling the country toward what likely would be its first far-right-led government since World War II. And in case you missed it in the first paragraph, the far-right label was repeated in the second, albeit while also reporting that Maloney's victory speech was moderate. When journalists reflexively attack something they can't define and don't understand, chances are they're attacking it because it is popular, intelligent and decent, three things the media increasingly is not these days. Maloney herself explained what she is fighting for in a speech to the World Congress of Families in Verona in 2019. Here's a sample of it. Il punto è che io credo in una società nella quale ad ogni scelta che fai corrispondono delle conseguenze e te ne assumi la responsabilità. Io rifiuto una società nella quale ogni desiderio diventa un diritto, ogni capriccio diventa un diritto, nella quale non ho responsabilità, ho solo diritti. Maloney went on in that speech to say that Western civilization faced a choice between traditional Christian family values and a dystopia in which global elites reduce people to mere numbers in a consumerist machine. No wonder the media, much of which already treats their readers as data to be sold to multinationals, was so triggered. The attempts to link her to wartime fascist leader Benito Mussolini were as brazen as they were desperate. The New York Times reminded its readers that Italy was the birthplace of fascism and that if Maloney's coalition is big enough, it might be able to change the Italian constitution and grant the government more power. What, like Western governments around the world did during the COVID lockdowns, you mean? The ABC said the Brothers of Italy had neo-fascist roots. The BBC said Maloney leads a party, quote, rooted in a post-war movement that rose out of dictator Benito Mussolini's fascists, unquote. The Guardian said her election was the normalisation of far-right parties. The Financial Times in London said her, quote, ideological roots lie in post-war fascism.
Well, in fact, they go back much further than that. As she says, her roots are in the Middle Ages, amid the creation of parliaments, universities and local governments, and the building of Italy's magnificent abbeys and cathedrals. If the media's warnings are correct, and Maloney really is the new Mussolini, then it would be accompanied by a militaristic alliance that threatened peace in Europe. But that's not happening. Well, not by her democratically elected party anyway. European Commission boss Ursula von der Leyen issued a veiled threat last week that if Italy's new government so much as thinks about leaving the EU, financial penalties will be imposed. If any unelected dictator wants to rule Europe, it's not Maloney. Does that make von der Leyen a fascist? Herein lies the most hollow aspect of the left media's reaction to Maloney. The people who most often accuse others of fascism are ironically the most likely to be one themselves. As Jonah Goldberg says in the best-selling book Liberal Fascism, quote, fascism is a modern word for heretic, branding an individual worthy of excommunication from the body politic, unquote. In other words, label someone fascist and suddenly you don't have to take their ideas seriously anymore. Until, that is, her party wins the most votes in an election. Time will tell what happens to Maloney after the hype dies down. Her party received only 26% of the total vote and her coalition partners differ from her on some fundamental policies, especially in relation to Russia. But in the meantime, we should celebrate the rise of politicians who boldly represent anti-globalist traditional values. If she does become Prime Minister, Georgia Maloney has her work cut out taking on the meddling European Union. We in Australia don't have that, which should make it a lot easier for a true conservative to harvest the conservative grassroots. If only one of our conservative politicians would do so. Well, you could count on one hand the Australian conservative politicians who, like Georgia Maloney, emphatically warn us against discarding our traditional values. These are politicians who can see our, in our institutions being eroded and know the consequences of it. Institutions such as family, church, patriotism, equality before the law, and mutual responsibility. These are institutions that the left has over the past few decades cleverly branded as boring, while espousing the more exciting ideas of hedonism and identity politics. But contrary to the left's promise, this has made us, this has not made us more free. Rather, we now find ourselves in a changing world with few reliable values or morals. We now have children sitting in the front row of government-funded drag shows. We have state governments pumping millions of dollars into three months of gay festivals in the middle of a monkeypox outbreak. We have universities where feelings take precedence over facts, where genders are arbitrarily redefined and scientists worship in the pagan church of Gaia. We have encouraged generations of young people to pursue victimhood instead of the challenges of parenthood and success. And our schools have taught kids to hate their country for its fictional oppression and to hate themselves for contributing to the destruction of the planet. 
The left has achieved all this in our lifetime. They've been able to get away with it because conservatives are polite by nature and would prefer to avoid conflict than fight back. Well, my next guest, South Australian Senator Alex Antich, says the time for politeness is now over. Alex, welcome. Hi, Fred. Thanks for having me and great to be with you. And you're absolutely right. It was a perfect intro. Great to have you back. I'm looking forward to this. Should conservatives feel responsible for allowing the left to take over our institutions the way they have? Well, look, I think, um, I mean, it's probably helpful to sort of talk about what we mean by when we say conservatives. I mean, I, when I actually talk about conservatives, I, I tend to think that's pretty much the, the majority, really, in Australia. Right? Quiet Australians, the forgotten people, whatever you want to call them. I think people are probably conservatives and they don't even really know it. They're people that want to, you know, just go to the footy, um, you know, spend time with their family, work, build a business and do the things they've always done. That they, In 2022, they're pretty conservative principles, sadly. And look, I think the answer is we have. I think as a collective, we've we've really let the let the lead go out a little bit and, and, and the left have run away with some of this stuff. And the stuff you described in the introduction was, was spot on. I mean, it really does describe the long march through the institutions, through the schools, through the universities and all the way into pop culture, into music, even into things like the AFL grand final on, on, on Saturday, which was the wokest grand final I've ever seen in my life. Uh, of course, people are switching off, but we have let them do that. We have let them do it just simply by not pushing back. And, and I think what you say is quite right. People here, particularly in Australia, will think one thing, nod and smile and let it go through to the keeper when I think, personally, and I'm not suggesting people need to go out and argue all the time, but, but I think we do have to push back a little bit and say, well, what do you mean you're a victim? Well, how do you mean that? You know, what, what well, do you let's, mean? Let, let's, get um, to how, we... let, let's get to how people should, should do this in a sec. Before then, I just want to dwell on those points I made earlier. Do you think we're more or less free now that the left dominates our culture? Look, I think we're much less free than we were, and I think we see that across all all spheres and, and sectors, and 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 you know all the way through to the stuff we saw during the COVID two years, um, which obviously had a fairly very telling impact. But I think you know we're also seeing that in just the general discourse. I, I, I you know we, we're today here in the Senate, we're debating uh, you know a censure motion against Pauline Hanson for things she said on Twitter, uh, and the debate is really all surrounded by language which tries, I think, to stop people from having that debate. You know, you're immediately a racist if you if you make an observation that the left don't like. And, you know, that's where we've got into trouble. I think the freedom of speech issue is just being clamped down on day by day by day by the left. And I, I, think, I think the rest of us are letting it happen. I think we've got to start pushing back. Well, it's interesting that you mention the debates going on in the Senate today. Well, I mean, are there any politicians other than yourself, of course, Alex, that recognise the urgency of defending our, our institutions and our culture and freedoms? Oh, look, I think there are, and they have been, and, and they come and go a bit, but there, there are still some, of course. You know, you've got great people like uh, Senator Matt Canavan and Senator Gerard Rennick, to name just a few. I mean, there are more. I mean, there are people that, that sort of come and go with these debates uh, a little bit, because, of course, there's lots of other stuff to talk about as well, the economic stuff. And um, But I, I do think these are preeminent issues. I, I think we really have to accept that culture is downstream from politics. And, and, and really, if we don't get this right, then we're seeing it affect everything. I, I think we have to you know, impress upon everyone, politicians, captains of industry, just how serious this is. And 
you know, the corporate sector is no better, by the way. We need people in the corporate sector to sort of say enough's enough. You know, we, we, all I want to do is fly on an airline. I don't want to be told, you know, uh, what to think. I just want to get to the destination and land properly and, and maybe have a meal on the way through. So everyone's got a role. That's the other That's the other thing that we've witnessed in our lifetime is the, the uh, corporatization of values that companies now represent certain values and coincidentally, they all seem to be woke. Um, mm. we, we should have pushed back against that as well, really, shouldn't we? Yeah, look, we definitely should. And I guess the problem is now that if you take your money elsewhere, you'll find another corporation <laughs> that has a similar line. You know, these ESG targets are killing killing everything. And I, I mean, I, you know, this is, this is coming straight out of the World Economic Forum and their playbook, the stakeholder capitalism concept. And I know um, your viewers are, are well familiar with, but this concept that the corporates now are so powerful that it's easier to try and control the corporate world in order to affect social change than it is to try and run it through parliaments where you know, I can attest to the fact that it's messy and it's slow and it does whatever. So, you know, getting those CEOs to start telling you what to think about climate change is a much faster way of influencing people. We're seeing it all through every corporation now. Every ad that's on TV is a diversity quota target. It's getting boring in itself, I have to say. And, uh, you know, we, 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 I, I, look, I think we have to start understanding that. I think people understanding that they're being socially engineered on all fronts is probably the starting point. That's a very good point, that, that the speed of change is, is higher, is faster if you take the corporate route than the, than the parliamentary route. I mean, here's a good example of it, Alex. Uh, last week we saw the ABC pr uh, publish very heinous accusations of racism against Alastair Clarkson, the former coach of, of, the AFL, uh, of Hawthorne in the AFL. Mm -hmm. Now, these allegations are untested and made by anonymous people, and yet they've caused enormous damage. Now, there was a time not long ago when that sort of publication would have sparked widespread criticism. Why has nobody in a, well, why have so few people in Australia, even in Canberra, stood up in defence of Clarkson's right to, for a fair go? Yeah, and look, it's, it's a great point. I mean, you know, really, what we're seeing is the next stage of the Me Too movement, really, aren't we? I mean, it's, uh, it's the same sort of, uh, you know, bold accusation that was thrown around in that context that really is not the sort of thing where we've got courts for this sort of stuff. We've got the, you know, the presumption of instance, which is a longstanding, you know, tenet. Uh, and none of that seems to matter anymore. And it doesn't seem to be ground that people want to tread across. Uh, look, I think once again, it's because of the nature of the subject matter. I think people tiptoe around it, unfortunately, which is a real shame. They, they certainly shouldn't. And, um, I don't know. I think we need to we need to give rise to a generation of political leaders, corporate leaders that that can look through this. And and, and as I said the other day, I think we were talking about it on your show, um, the need to just brush off the name calling. I mean, uh, you know, I, the other week in the chamber, I was called all sorts of names by Senator Lydia Thorpe. And so what? Mm. I mean, I don't care. I mean, it's you know, it, it, the chamber dealt with it. The rules dealt with it. And we move on. And you know, exactly. It, yep. It sticks it's and just stones. The way we have to be. It sticks and sticks stones. And stones. How, well, let, brings, brings us back to the point you were going to make earlier. How can ordinary Australians fight back against all this stuff, Alex? Well, look, I, I mean, there are a whole heap of things. I think understanding it is the first one. I think some of the things we've talked about there about understanding what, what's happening every time you turn on your TV, the fact that you are getting pushed in a certain direction. So making that connection, I think, is the first thing. But speaking up about it, and that, in, that includes just in social settings as well, and I think we need you know, these voices of common sense everywhere in our world. We need 
people running for local councils. We need people on the medical boards, on the law society boards, on the teachers boards, on the school boards. People need to get involved. And, and I've been saying for the longest time, that my great hope is that people get involved in politics as well, because I, I think uh, part of the issue has been that we have allowed the left to uh, creep while we sleep in uh, in real terms. And, and conservatives have got to get back involved with uh, with part, you know, politics. And I, and I say, you know, we need to uh, make sure that the Liberal Party is a great home for Conservatives because the values are all right. Um, you know, they're all they're all perfectly sound, and you know they all fit. They're all fit for purpose. We just have to make sure that we're making sure there are people involved there who can prosecute that case and uh, who will stand for them without fear or favour. There are lots that do. There are lots that do. But you know, like anything, like any good war, you always need reinforcements. Yeah. And if people are really serious about these matters, they need to put their money where their mouth is and get involved in politics. Well, I'm sure that you've you've discovered this to your surprise at, on occasions too, Alex. I mean, quite often when I gently push back against people who are trying to make woke assertions in my company, if you do it civilly, you do find it's quite possible to persuade people, isn't it? Yeah, yeah look, it really is. And it's a natural progression, particularly when kids have been force-fed some of this nonsense since school age through universities and then into their jobs in the corporate sector, you know, where all they're dealing with is diversity targets where they should be looking at, you know, billing targets. Um, it's, you know, you'd expect that being surrounded by things like that all your life and being told you're a victim um, would rub off and it doesn't take much. And, and the, the, certainly you're not going to get there if we don't try. And look, it's a, it's a long road and no one's suggesting that. The left have been at this for decades, the long march, as we said very early on in the piece. But um, if we don't start, you know, it's like the old thing about when's the best time to plant a tree. It was, you know, a week ago, yesterday. Um, exactly. We're going to do that with politics as well. Otherwise, we're on a, we're on a, we're chopping down the forest, Fred. <laughs> exactly. Well, there were some good, in, good developments in positive developments in Italy over the weekend. What's your response to the uh, popularity of Georgia Maloney? Oh, look, I'm not surprised. I'm sure you're not surprised either. And I, I must say, I don't know everything about her. I don't know everything about her politics. But what I do know is what I've seen from her so far is very encouraging. She's talking the language of, uh, you know, of traditional families, defending the nuclear families, pushing back on woke ideology. And guess what? Amazingly popular. And she's going to form a coalition where she's going to be the prime minister. Who would have thought? You know, of course, predictably, it's all getting labelled as far, far right and hard right and neo-fascist. Uh, and of course, you know, it's all from what I can see nonsense. Um, the, the media, the, the corporate media will find a way to do that. Uh, once again, the sky doesn't fall in and democracy works as long as people are involved. So I think it's exciting times. We're seeing it all across Europe. We're seeing people getting elected that hold these these values and pushing back on the, you know, on the sort of the European Union globalist agenda, which is really, really encouraging. And I think we're probably going to see a bit of that in the US during the midterms as well. So the time is right for conservatives to stand up because there's a real appetite for it out there, even in Australia. Here, here, even in Australia. Now, speaking of international relations, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is in Japan for the funeral of Shinzo Abe. And while he was there, he spoke over the phone with US Vice President Kamala Harris about, get this, how to lower inflation. I think Kamala Harris yeah. knows more about causing inflation than reducing it. What do you think they <laughs> talked about, Alex? Well, I don't know, but it would have been a long conversation. She, she's not known for a short, uh, short answers. The, the old word salad would have come out, I'm sure, and, and uh, she would have found a way to make a very simple concept, very long-winded. But uh, look, who would know what Camilla Harris could offer about inflation other than, as you say, how to increase it? Because that's what we've seen under her, her and uh, Joe Biden's administration in the last few years. Those economic figures are frightening. 
Uh, and look, this is the same the same lady that could get one percent of the primary vote and just found herself uh, as the vice president of the United States all of a sudden. So, you know, I, I really don't know what she would have to offer there. But I but I assume that you know, like every photo opportunity, this one uh, this was what people were looking for here. And uh, you don't get one phone, but at least you can you can tweet out that you're speaking to the vice president. I I. I Look, it would have been a long conversation, let's face it. <laughs> a long and confused one. I don't know what Albo would have got yeah. out of it, but anyway. And just quickly before you go, Alex, our energy and climate change minister, uh, Chris Bowen, is in the United States and uh, to do, among other things, pitch for us to, hope COP, to host COP28, the UN's climate change mm -hmm. conference. These things are now like the Olympics. I mean, you've got all these high-level lobbyists going in to, you know, try to win the, 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 the gig to host these events. What's the benefit for Australia, Alex? Is there any? Well, it's more like the self-harm Olympics, really, or the woke Olympics, isn't it, um, when you think about it? And, and uh, I mean, there's no benefit in it. I mean, these, these are nonsensical talk fests for, you know, global elites and bureaucrats, carpetbaggers, um, and, uh, you know, uh, look, I, the, this is exactly the sort of thing we need to steer away from. I wouldn't care where you host it. I wouldn't want anyone to go. Um, we're now seeing the effects of some of these, um, you know, some of these talk fests that we've had over the years, Paris and, you know, Kyoto before it, of course. And, um, look, uh, you know, well, once again, we'll go through the cycle of having to point out the hypocrisy of everyone flying in on private jets and, you know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Let's talk to the farmers about this, right? The farmers all over Europe have got a very different view on this. The farmers in Australia are going to have a very different view on it soon too. And I would prefer to see us stay right out of it, frankly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Alex Antich, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. Good to be with you. That's Senator Alex Antich, who will be speaking at the CPAC conference in Sydney this weekend. To buy tickets, go to cpac.network. Well, imagine my shock when I read that Greens Senator Lydia Thorpe was so rude at a meeting last year that one person who attended later sought medication to calm herself down. But Lydia seems such a humble, gracious, considerate young thing, doesn't she? The story about this fateful meeting was published in the Sydney Morning Herald today. The meeting was with Aboriginal elder Auntie Geraldine Atkinson, aged in her 70s, in Parliament House in July last year. Thorpe accused Atkinson and her family of being in high paid positions that didn't benefit other Indigenous people, according to the Herald. Atkinson said afterwards, quote, when I tried to intervene to respond, Senator Thorpe spoke over the top of me in a highly aggressive tone, repeatedly stating, I am an Australian Senator, you are in my meeting. I interpreted this as her using her position to try to intimidate me. Thorpe's advisor, Dave, David Meijer-Canales, resigned a year later and as his last act, sent an apology to Atkinson, which the Herald also received. His email said, quote, since that meeting, I have wanted to reach out to you to apologize because the conduct that I witnessed at that meeting was by far one of the most unprofessional displays I have ever seen, not just during the length of my career, but in my life." Unquote. Thorpe really has a way of making an impression on people, doesn't she? 
Here she is with fake blood on her hands at a protest in Melbourne last week when the rest of the nation was having a day off to mourn the death of, Ma of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. But Thorpe didn't take that day off. No, sir. She was hard at work, smearing paint on her hands and telling her fellow protesters, quote, do you know that we've had over 20,000 Aboriginal children that have been stolen in 2022 and you want to mourn the coloniser who brought the pain and genocide here to our people? No, I didn't know that, Lydia. But I did know that Queen Elizabeth, or at least the British Empire, brought the parliamentary democracy that has given you such a free and prosperous life and in, in which you are paid to be the demure, civil, sophisticated young woman you are. So there's that. Well, there's nothing ambiguous about the group Gays Against Groomers. This American not-for-profit organization is, quote, directly opposed to the sexualization and indoctrination of children, unquote. By this, they mean drag queen story hours, drag shows involving kids, transitioning of minors, and gender theory being taught in schools. Given that this type of grooming is, of children is increasingly common and overt these days, opposing it should be a no-brainer, right? Not according to PayPal and its subsidiary Venmo, who both within minutes of each other deleted Gays Against Groomers account on the weekend. PayPal's executives were invited to appear on a show on Foxtel called The Next Revolution, on Fox News I should say, to explain the decision, but declined. Next Revolution host Steve Hilton called the PayPal executives pathetic cowards, which seems about right, and said PayPal now supports, quote, prematurely sexualizing vulnerable children, unquote. Again, Pretty difficult to argue with that. It sparked a minor backlash on social media in which conservatives encouraged each other to cancel their PayPal accounts. I was one of those who did so. But my next guest, Alexandra Marshall of The Spectator Australia, who is as appalled by the sexualization of children as anybody, says cancelling PayPal accounts is the wrong thing to do. And I'm glad to say she joins me now. Alexandra, welcome. Thank you very much for having me on. Now, you say that PayPal is actually useful for up-and-coming conservative writers. Why is that? Well, first of all, let's just put this in context. So this is by far not the first time that PayPal has done this. It's not the first time we've had, you know, cancel PayPal trending. And PayPal are not alone in cancelling conservative accounts or political accounts. MasterCard does it. Kofi does it. Pretty much any online payment gateway is doing it. So we're living in an environment where all the payment gateways are cancelling conservatives. So in that environment, we have a whole stack of young writers, particularly conservative and independent writers, who rely on organisations like PayPal in order to make a living. So when conservatives go through and en masse delete their accounts, the only thing they actually achieve at the end of the day is to demonetize the very people who are speaking out against things like what we're talking about now. And those poor conservatives who are not on payrolls, they're not on salaries, they don't belong to journalistic organisations, their only income is PayPal or a, a subsidiary like PayPal, 
they just go back and, and go back and work in Coles or something because they can't support themselves. And uh, if PayPal and the left are thrilled with that because all they've done is get rid of conservatives. All the left is still on PayPal and PayPal barely skips a beat. So the solution is instead of disempowering and uh, demonetizing all of the conservative writers by canceling your PayPal, one, I'd suggest you go and donate to them, which would really annoy PayPal to start with, and two, start campaigning politicians to include uh, online payment gateways like PayPal into the banking uh, regulations so that they can't play politics with banking. Well, could we, we'll get to the, the, the policies about banking in a second, but you're speaking from personal experience here, aren't you? <laughs> Absolutely. Look, if it wasn't for the likes of PayPal and before that, Kofi, I would not have become a conservative commentator because I would not have been able to support myself for long enough in order to make it into you know, shows like this beautiful production you have going on here, Fred. And we are going to miss out on so many emerging talents by punishing our own writers and commentators instead of actually hurting PayPal, because this doesn't really hurt PayPal. But why is it just a PayPal thing? Are you saying that all these payment gateways are, are, are woke? Absolutely. So I used to write, uh, have take most of my uh, donations through Kofi, which was a, an independent little gateway like a PayPal, but uh, smaller. And after some online trolling, Kofi sent me a message saying, oh, this is after about four or five years. Oh, sorry, you're a dangerous writer, so we've cancelled your account. Now, they couldn't give me any incidences of where I was a dangerous writer. They could not point to a single thing that I had written or done that would break any of their regulations, despite other accounts on their thing breaking regulations. They just cut you off and that's your income gone overnight. So what I'm proposing is to protect writers by making sure that these places are properly regulated. So, um, but why would any company be seen to even indirectly support the sexualization of children? How does that even make sense? Oh, they don't, they don't even care what a particular topic is. As I said, they cancel accounts all the time, including free press accounts that would have no relation to why they would be banning those accounts. It's just they play politics. So if someone in their political sphere thinks that this account is far right or something like that, regardless of the subject matter, they will go and cancel it as being in some kind of social breach of their terms and conditions. It's got nothing to do with the specific morality, which is what you would think, but it, it hasn't. It has to do with this wider idea of playing social politics with payment gateways. It's, it's kind of confusing though, Alexandra. I mean, we, we've just seen exceptionally popular uh, politicians and parties being elected in Italy. I've just spoken to Alex Antich saying that most Australians are innately conservative. Why don't these companies, why are these companies just assuming that all the money is in the woke demographics? It, it doesn't make sense to me. They don't assume that at all. It's the personal politics of the people who own these companies that's in play. So they have plenty of money of their own. They've got a fortune coming in. And so they can afford to play politics with their product. I mean, they can only do that to a point, but at the moment there is enough money in about half the population, which is you know the left-right split, for them to act like this. And so they're never going to behave themselves on their own. And they have not been regulated as they should be. So with social media, the regulation should be free speech for all and to stop the uh, censorship, as far as banking goes, they have to be brought into terms with a normal bank. So unless you commit a crime, it shouldn't be any opinion about a payment gateway, what you do or don't do. Okay, so yeah, let's elaborate on that. What should, uh, what, what policy, what, what laws should be introduced 
to uh, bring these, uh, these woke payment gateways to heal? Well, this has been going on for about five years. I think MasterCard was one of the first places to start banning conservatives who, whose work they didn't like on their payment gateways. And it's been insidious since that point. So you hear about a few big people being cancelled, but in reality, lots of people have been cancelled over the years. And, and these cancel uh, trends on Twitter never do any good. What people have been asking for is the same regulations as when you open a bank account, where the, the bank cannot deny you access to your funds or the ability to use a banking service unless you're actually charged with a specific crime. So unless you're taking money for I don't know, illegal prostitution or you're a child trafficking ring or, you know, you're a groomer, for instance, uh, <laughs> then you should have access to your funds. And it doesn't matter if you're writing for the political right or the political left, unless charges brought against you, PayPal shouldn't be able to do anything. Seems like a no-brainer to me. And I, that's I wish... the solution. Like, yeah, that's well, the problem. It, and it's a simple one too, Alexandra. And and, and it, it's fair, it's simple, and it's a no-brainer. I, I just wish some conservative politicians would stand up and propose it. But let's <clears throat> let's talk about Iran now. There's a, there's a uh, protest movement sweeping Iran in which very brave young women are burning the hijabs that their male religious overlords force them to wear. The protests were in response to the to the were in response to the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who was arrested for wearing her hijab too loosely two weeks ago and was beaten to death. The ABC curiously described her having quote fallen into a coma while in custody. But that aside, since then there have been widespread protests in Iran, and I even saw one video of a member of the morality police who had slapped a woman in the street. Then he got surrounded by other men and he got beaten up. Alexandra, this story isn't getting much coverage. Why is the leftist media not celebrating this popular uprising? Well, this is a huge problem, this story, uh, particularly for left-wing privileged women in the West uh, and especially for politicians. So we've had this game almost going, this social politicking, where politicians, female politicians, have been donning hijabs in order to try and up their woke virtue points among certain opinion polls. Now that is uh, by many migrants who've escaped theocratic countries where the hijab is not just a religious symbol, it's also a system of patriarchal control, which you'd think the left would be against, but not when it comes into clashing with their other identity groups. Well, they don't know what to do because uh, they've actually put themselves in a mutually exclusive position. They either support women who are burning their hijabs and opposing this oppressive patriarchal and religious regime that has subjected them to basically uh, their property almost for men, or they continue to support what they've been spending five or ten years doing, which is this whole work virtue circling, I've worn the hijab to show my solidarity with this community. Now, you can't do both. And uh, unfortunately, people like we had Julie Bishop, for instance, who went overseas and she donned a hijab when she didn't have to. But then you had other politicians like Condoleezza Rice who did not. So there's two schools of thought here. And unfortunately for most Australian privileged politicians, they have come down very firmly on the side of let's support the hijab and to hell with the poor women in Iran who are trying to escape this horrific system of government that they've only had for you know, a few decades, it's not been this way forever for them. 
Yeah, I just I can't admire them enough, to be honest. I mean, they are imprisoned uh, very easily and um, many of them disappear. So their bravery is extraordinary, Mm. especially compared to the (laughs) the feminists who whine about living in modern developed uh, industrial nations like Australia. Yeah, that's feminism. Forget about this whole let's strip naked and paint weird stuff across your chest. The women in Iran are taking a real risk against their government and they are displaying true strength of character. They are, yeah. Now let's switch over to Cuba. Now here's some interesting footage. This is an oil storage facility in Cuba that was struck by lightning this month and burst into flames. The carbon footprint for this must be absolutely huge. Alexandra, what has been the response from Australian Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen for this catastrophic carelessness? And will we see Australian school kids take a day off to march in the streets about the Cuban government stealing their dreams of a safe future? Well, it's extraordinary. While the, the, these oil tanks were literally spewing forward black toxic spoke into the atmosphere and presumably dragging us, Fred, toward the end times, the school students and the climate grifters inside the Labor government were complaining about wanting a republic. They didn't <laughs> seem to notice that the, uh, what do they call it? The world is on fire, quite literally. And so you have to ask yourself how much of this fear is manufactured? How much of it is propaganda? We've got this thing called climate anxiety in schools now where it's almost a clinical condition where kids are you know, howling and screaming, but weirdly only at certain times, only when they've got their phones out for Instagram and only if the TV cameras are appearing. The rest of the time they're off watching Netflix and chilling on a couch. Uh, so with this Cuban oil crisis, it was a genuine disaster. It was a huge fireball that burned for you know, about a week. It killed I think it was 16 or 17 people. And the uh, the propaganda house of the left-wing communist regime over there is oh, nothing to see here. I think the, the World Wildlife Fund or some UN organization gave them five stars of being the most sustainable you know, government in the world. And the end of the story was that the, the Minister for Climate and Technology and Science or whatever it is, was saying that they're not worried about this giant fireball and black smoke. They're worried about COVID's impact on biodiversity and the environment, because that is the greatest risk to climate change. COVID and climate change, well, that's, the, that's the perfect double right there. It, it just, it, I just find it alarming though, that only developed countries commit climate crimes. There's, there's gotta be another moral level here, doesn't there? Not just developing countries, if you're a left wing, like a communist country, for instance, well then you are a virtuous climate sustainable country, even if 85% of your energy comes from literally burning oil, or whether or not you have the worst healthcare system in the world, it doesn't really matter so long as you subscribe to the socialist order, which is what, you know, that's the, we're all heading towards. If you want to save the planet, well you have to, what is it, disassemble your evil capitalist democracies and, and join the one world government where uh, we'll all be safe from the apocalypse somehow. So all this climate change panic is just a disguise for something else? Surely not, Alexandra. <laughs> Surely that's never happened before in history. Surely no authority figure has ever scared the population in order to convert them over to their cause and offer them salvation. That's never happened in history, Fred. What are you talking <laughs> about? Get these conspiracy theories away from me. Well, I'm feeling better already. <laughs> Alexandra Marshall, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That's Alexandra Marshall, the editor of The Spectator Australia's website, whose own brilliant writing appears on the site almost every day. 
And before I go, I should point out that one of the reasons Giorgia Maloney, who is likely to be the next Prime Minister of Italy, is so popular is her policy on immigration. She told a political rally in Spain in July, quote, say no to Islamist violence, yes to secure borders, no to mass migration, unquote. This is not as xenophobic as the left would suggest it is. As she explained to the Washington Post, quote, the smart approach is, you come to my house according to my rules, unquote. She is simply saying the conditions of immigration is, is every nation's prerogative, prerogative. Or as someone else once famously said, we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. This is anathema in the relativist globalist world of leftists though. And here is another non-leftist spouting this introspective nationalism back in June this year. Quote, they are better in their own land. Keep Europe for Europeans. Sorry, did I say a non-leftist said that? Oops, I meant to say it was the Dalai Lama. You just never know when these globe-trotting lovies will start making sense, do you? We'll get United States President Joe Biden telling us that climate change isn't real next. Just kidding, everyone knows that Joe Biden isn't really the president. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching and don't forget to tune back in at 8 p.m. tomorrow night for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH TV. And I'll see you straight after him at nine o'clock. Good night.